You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Section 9. Accounts from the Field Here you will find first-hand experiences of members of the Reunified States Army and Cartographer Scouts. As with the rest of this book, they are included to better illuminate the situations you will be facing. Tabitha Chorley, Lewistown, Pennsylvania, January 23rd, 1882. As a bone collector, my task is one of the less pleasant to carry out, and even discuss, from the range of professions available to an American woman in 1882. All of the towns, villages, and settlements we pass through, if not occupied by humanity, must be cleared. Often this means dispatching the Wendigo population residing there. If that is the case, then the remains we find of the former residents are, in no uncertain terms, a congregation of bones. It is my task, with the men and women under me, to go house to house, room to room, cellar to attic, to gather the dead. If they died in hiding, we must find them. If they represent the leavings of the Wendigo, we must sweep them up. After the bodies are all found and accounted for, we collect them in pits, at the outskirts of town, and see to it that they are buried and consecrated, so that their souls may find peace. The bodies of the Wendigos are treated somewhat differently. We know for sure that their souls left them some time ago, along with the last of their humanity, and they are gathered in identical pits, burned and buried, located far from the town and out in the wild, lest their infection somehow seep into the soil. Upon the stones set at the mass graves, we simply etch the name of the settlement, there is no ferreting out of identities and attributing them to the dead. It became too complex an issue, differentiating between those turned and those consumed, and on occasion, both. It also weighed far too heavily on those around me to sift through their belongings and imagine each person alive and well only then to be forced into reckoning upon the circumstances of their death. Too many stories, too much truth. We have enough sadness of our own without bearing the burdens of the strangers whom we meet, now departed. I am asked why God would do this. Why does he punish us so? Where I was born in Sharpsburg, we were raised to love him and praise his name. Everywhere I walk now, I meet more who fear and even curse him. If this is his will, how can we feel any different? I have known folks simply lay down and never wake. So hopeless was their vision of our future. I decided 
lest I lie down and give up too, to take the word of those who say, He is testing us. I do not know to what end, but I have an inkling. On occasion, I have had the rare opportunity to return to towns I have formerly cleared, and which have been resettled with refugees, grateful for a roof over their heads after years of rootless wandering. The chimney smoke, the smell of cooking stoves, the sound of playing children, born in the Wendigo years, the candles at the windowsill, the smiles of those who know what my company and I had to do in order to provide their new home. That is one more step to my passing his test. Corporal Ryan Considine, Mayfield, Ohio, June 3rd, 1881. It is sure and true that the Wendigo can kill y'all right, but it's merely the one holding the baton at the head of the marching band of nature stretching back into our history. Fact is, everything can kill you out here and most of it's actively attempting to do so with every minute of the day. The cold can kill you, as most will know by now, swiftly and with a numbing surety. Water can kill you, whether it be in a foolish attempt to cross vast expanses or creeks you aren't sure of the depth of, running down the back of your neck, the damp, the rot, Water and cold together conspire to end your life in unpleasant and foul-smelling ways, bringing with them diseases and all sorts of infections. The sun can kill you. A man without a hat or access to shade and water in the boiling heat of South Carolina is liable to go mad before he drops. Bears can kill you. They also kill several of your companions for good measure. Mountain lions, packs of wolves, everything that moves. I once saw a private sit down on a tree stump to shake the stones out his boots and propped himself up on a pile of dried leaves. He left up screaming and kicking. Turned out it was a rattlesnake had been curled up in them leaves. He hadn't heard the rattle over the sound of the men around him until it was too late. He lost the arm and later died of infection within three days. My brother's unit was clearing through towns down near Richmond and found a place strewn with bodies. The corpses were less emaciated than were found in a lot of settlements that had been stricken with starvation. They even found food in the storehouses. Turned out it was smallpox and the entire unit had to be quarantined. Four made it out alive. My brother Tom, however, God rest his soul. At least with the Wendigo, you know you're on even terms. 
it can kill you, but you can stick a knife into its guts. Better yet, a bullet in the forehead before it gets to you. No man, however, can banish the cold, the rain, the burning sun, sickness, despair. A man can only guard against them and pray he's done his best. Corporal Harriet Blaine, Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, November 24th, 1881. In a small settlement in Pennsylvania, our party came across a sorry situation that I speak of now in order to cultivate understanding of the actions of desperate people. The defences of the town were primed and guarded against our encroachment, and I distinctly recall a moment of unbearable tension when it seemed like we would be granted neither entry to impart news of the outside world, nor be given leave to return to the main group. It was, in fact, only the actions of my lieutenant, who very slowly, announcing his every move as he did so, placed every weapon he had upon him on the ground, and walked with deliberation and utmost calm, with arms raised and palms open to meet their leader. There was some discussion, and I avoided the eyes of the men and women with rifles trained upon me. Instead, I fixed myself to my purpose of aiding and informing the pockets of survivors we would continue to meet. Lieutenant Williamson then beckoned me over, and we sat with a small group of them. They accounted for many years of isolation and fear, fending off multiple Wendigo attacks and trying unsuccessfully for a long while to make the land more agreeable to growing vegetables and grain. Harsh winter and blight, along with the Wendigo's obliteration of the majority of the nearby livestock had made a feeding of the town people a mean exercise. When in 1876, 17 of their number were dead but not yet in the ground, the meeting was held. It was here that a man I will not name first put forward the idea of sustaining the living with the bodies of the dead. This information was revealed to us with not undue shame and open weeping. I could tell from Williamson's face that this was as hard for him to bear as it was for me. Some years before, my natural inclination would have been to snatch up my revolver and end the life of as many of these abominable creatures as I could. It was bad enough to have our minds and bodies violated by the sickness of the Wendigo, a being intent on feeding on the very humans whose species it previously shared. But for rational men and women to take this step, even under duress, would have been near incomprehensible for me. However, I was now older and had seen many horrors. Gazing into the sorrowful eyes of these people, who had been through so much hardship, death and sacrificing of standards and ethics. My younger vengeful fires were quashed. A naughty situation was upon us. If we acquitted the townspeople of all crimes, and especially if these events were recorded, would we be sending out the message, 
quite horrific in its nature, that it was an acceptable course of action to eat human flesh in trying times. Recalling the words of Director Arlington, I surmised that the myth of the Wendigo was begun by the Indians to make this very crime an unforgivable sin. On the other hand, if, feigning compliance, we were treated to the safety of our ranks and sent in a contingent of soldiers to wipe these cannibals from the face of the earth, would that rob us of potential allies? Not to mention any soldiers who might perish in the fray. Would that simply be sanction and murder? Were the children just as guilty as the adults? Where did the line lie between abominable crime and desperate measure? Lieutenant Williamson and I discussed this in safety far from the settlement. We agreed that we could neither abandon them to the elements they had been prey to for years, nor leave this incident unaddressed. As we considered how hard they had tried to keep themselves alive, without resorting to their eventual crime. The solution presented itself. The town would be granted a very specific and apt redemption. Not one of these people would be drafted as a soldier. All would instead become medical trainees and agricultural workers. With years of hard graft, they might eventually save enough lives in battlefield medical bays and through the cultivation of food for the hungry American people, to square them with the Almighty in an effort to win their soul's salvation and entry into heaven. The cost of human life is simply too precious now to haphazardly dole out judgments of death. In the fall of this year, I received a bullet to the leg from a bandit group around the James River in Lynchburg. I later learned that the man who saved my leg was from the Pennsylvania settlement. Now, whenever I hit a jaunty stride, I reflect on my first dark inclination and thank God I did not follow up on it. Captain Annie Oakley, Missouri, January 1879 Every so often you will come across a place that has managed to make things work. It is a rare thing, and should not only be preserved, but held to shining example for the rest of the world. A great deal of this depends on the placement of the area survivors have settled in. Usually, they are remote enough not to have been flooded with wandering refugees seeking any port in a storm secluded enough not to have attracted attention from nomadic gangs that move through our land, stripping away everything of value. And nearly always they will be peopled with small numbers of eminently practical and adaptable folk. The double bind of this is that the more inhospitable the area, the harsher the climate and the more difficult to harvest the land of resources, the less people will flock to it and the more isolated it will remain. This means a delicate balance of elements with human ingenuity to bring them all to fruition, and I confess the places I have come across that fit this tall order are scarce indeed. One such place, which I will remind readers of a covetous disposition, 
has a fully armed and fortified garrison nearby, was in Mattawa, Ontario. I was in one of the parties that traveled northwards to search for possible retreats for the American people. The remote location, coupled with cooperation from and trade with the Algonquin Aboriginals, had allowed a small fishing colony to thrive in that area. Any and all sightings of the Wendigo were followed up on and dedicated hunting teams were sent out to track them down. We stayed with this group for some time before pressing on, eventually returning to emplace the military outpost. What I found most heartwarming was the acceptance that existed in this camp. Though many had pitched up there after bearing witness to the horrors of the panic in our cities, fear had not taken hold of them. They simply took the Wendigo as another element that they must react to with corresponding vigor in order to survive. They had woven the creatures into the fabric of their day. They were not waiting for rescue or salvation. This was simply life moving on, just as it always had. This instilled in me the hope that one day, despite the trials behind and ahead of us, we can, as a nation, consider ourselves a people able to weather the worst and survive with body, mind, and heart intact. You have been listening to Section 9 of the Cartographer's Handbook, Accounts from the Field, written by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alex Shaw. Tabitha Chorley, performed by Maureen Foley. Ryan Considine, performed by Jacob Newburn. Harriet Blaine, performed by Sharon Shaw. Annie Oakley, performed by Loretta Saylor. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Touching Story, Complex, Morning Song, Reminiscing, and Dreams Become Real, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Daniel Salguero, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner. Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chesham. <laughs>